Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. I couldn't fit the whole passage, so I put a couple preliminary passages on your outline. And you will need to turn in your Bibles, your pew Bibles, or in the first book of the Bible, or your uh, electronic version, whatever you've got there. But you'll need to have your Bible open to Genesis 6. The amount of Scripture that is devoted to giving the account of the great flood of Noah's day should not be discounted, uh, shouldn't be unnoticed. Um, we're talking four full chapters of 50 total chapters in Genesis devoted to this, this one event. It's that important, um, and its impact reverberates through the rest of the biblical text for sure, and even on to the future, as we'll see from these verses. And I want to prepare us by reading these two verses from the New Testament. We have the benefit of God's complete revelation, and we have Jesus himself uh, drawing a connection to what is to come, to what has happened in the flood. We'll see it in the verses uh, there first. Then Peter, the apostle, says something similar, both relating Jesus' final coming to what happened in the days of Noah and the uh, flood event. So I'll begin by reading a few verses from Matthew. I have a couple there. I'm going to read a couple verses ahead of that, and, and then the text you have on the outline. Then I'll go to the Peter text, and then finally we'll look at the first portion of the flood narrative in Genesis chapter 6 and then into chapter 7. Uh, all of what I'm reading here, this is the holy word of the living God. Matthew 24, I'll start at verse 35. Jesus speaking in this text. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So you see the final coming of Christ compared to the events that we will soon read. Peter gives more insight, 2 Peter 3, 4 through 7. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Noah's flood is a prefigurement of the final judgment. We see that from the New Testament, Jesus himself giving that explanation. So we should have this in mind as we study chapter 6 through 9. Noah's flood was about God keeping the promised seed preserved so the Messiah would come but it's also a prefigurement of the final judgment. We can see Noah and we can see the ark as types of God's salvation, pictures of what Christ would do. But make no mistake, there is another judgment coming, a final judgment. It won't be water. According to Peter, it'll rather be by fire. The world in Noah's day was destroyed with the flood. 
and it needed a recreation. And this is a picture of final judgment that awaits. So this passage gives us the picture of the seed being preserved, God's promise continuing, but also gives us a warning of the future. Here now as I read God's word, Genesis 6, I'll start at verse 8, and I'll finish reading at chapter 7, verse 22. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above. And set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold... I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, in every living thing that I've made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps in the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark of Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, 
They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, all the flesh in which there was the breath of life. And to those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the ground, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out everything, every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we open Genesis once again, we are moved to a high and reverent esteem for your holy word. The heavenliness of the content, the efficacy of its doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to you, O God. And the full discovery that it makes of the only way of our salvation, that is through the final Adam, the Lord Jesus himself. And now, O Lord, for this time, as we read of that great flood that you sent in the days of Noah, give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you have revealed so that we might be sanctified and be prepared. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It was only in November that a writer named Catherine Nixie from Great Britain wrote an article for The Economist. Albert Moeller refers to this article in one of his latest briefings, and I bring it up to you. The title of the article by Nixie was called, God is Getting More Liberal. The author was basically poking fun at the Old Testament picture of God who brought judgment. She writes, smiting used to be so simple. God smote and people trembled, and they sometimes died. He smote the rebellious Israelites, ten thousands died. The firstborn Egyptians, they all died. The Philistines, they died. The Sodomites suffered a particularly striking smiting. In Genesis, the men of Sodom are wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. So God rained brimstone and fire upon Sodom. But few in Britain, she writes, celebrate that kind of a smighty almighty God today. As the Archbishop of Canterbury said, God is love. The evidence is clear, she writes, God is becoming more liberal. Now it's true. Modern man, modern humankind often mocks the idea of a God who judges, like Catherine Nixie does here. The notion that God would act against humanity in judgment is essentially made fun of in this article and in the statements of a host of contemporary writers and pundits. But modern unbelieving man in their understanding of God is not an accurate one. The true God of the Bible is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, in his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his justice, his goodness, and his truth. The true God of the universe can do whatever he pleases, and he does do whatever he pleases. 
and whatever he pleases is always right. Scripture gives us the truth about our offense against God and his justified anger with our sin. But the scripture also tells us this. It tells us of the great story and reality of God's grace shown to us through Christ. His undeserved favor for all those who are united to Christ. For those who believe on Christ, who are with Christ, they will be saved. Just as those who were with Noah were saved. Just as the ark kept them safe from judgment, we are saved in Christ. And that's the great message of Scripture, to let us know that there is a way of escape from this just judgment that God will bring. In this way, this is a redemptive judgment. And we read of this first magnificent one as a way to not only understand the past, see God's hand of promise, but also to be prepared for the future and recognize where safety may be found. The acts of God's righteous judgment should prompt every believer here, should prompt you to further assurance, more obedience, to have reverence for God and depend completely on him. Nowhere else can we look for this deliverance. Assurance of God's promised grace, obedience, because we know the Lord God is working in us who he has saved, reverence because we see once again on full display his awesome power in this cataclysmic event. And also, ultimately, we have to depend on him. He's the only one dependable. We depend on him because his holy justice is clearly on display and his power is unstoppable and all-powerful. So we depend on him for deliverance. Let's walk through the account together and consider these different features, these different, these different fruits that come from recognizing what God has done here in the flood of Noah's day. First, I want you to see with me this part of the flood account. It shows us, again, God's undeserved favor towards Noah and those associated with Noah. Really, he's still showing his favor in all that he does by declaring what will happen. God's undeserved favor in the midst of his judgment. This should give us assurance that he'll always keep his promise of grace. God's action to judge the earth, it can't be questioned, it's justified but we are also assured of his commitment to send the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent and undo this dilemma that we have found ourselves in as mankind. This whole episode shows God's commitment to keep his promise. Yes, it shows his justice and his holy wrath, but it also shows a preservation because he will do what he promised to do in salvation. And he places his favor upon this man, Noah. God remembering his promise does so. The preservation of Noah and his family is a show of God's great grace. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Before verse 8, we only have a catalog of how bad everybody was. It's not to be read as though God saw everything was really bad, waited around for someone to rise from the heap of depraved humanity, and then saw Noah. The order of things really needs to be recognized in verse 8. But despite all this wickedness out there, but Noah found God's favor. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Because God places his hand of grace upon Noah, we see the rest of this story unfold. We see Noah's life, his obedience, his special calling, his ability to bring salvation to those in his family. All of this comes from God's 
favor shown to Noah, this grace that he shows to Noah. Doesn't say that Noah was favorable before God's grace touched him. The text says that Noah found God's grace. And his relationship with God unfolds from that point as it's described. In verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Remember, this statement is after he's found favor. He was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The grace of God to give Noah so much. He gives him righteousness. As Noah believes in God, this righteousness shows forth. He's blameless in that he's above reproach. As compared to all humanity, this relationship with God produces in him a clarity of his association. He walked with God. He was a father. He was given children. It says in verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth. Behold, it was corrupt. All flesh had corrupted their way in the earth. We see the state of things. But yet verse 13, he tells Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will, to dest- I will destroy them with the earth. Wait a minute, how's that gracious? He's telling them what he's going to do. He's giving special revelation. He could leave them all to suffer and die under this. It would be totally right for him to do, but he chooses by his grace to give this warning, to give his word. He gives special revelation. Doesn't need to, but he does. He gives this warning. And he says, furthermore, Noah, make yourself an ark. You're going to need a boat. Go do this. And make rooms in the ark, and I'll lay out for you exactly what you should do with this. We could see God's gracious actions revealing his plan to Noah. God's commitment to save is stated explicitly in this very, very important verse that comes next, verse 18. Look there with me. It's a critical verse in the Old Testament. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. On the basis of his calling Noah, Noah can bring his family, his family who has no apparent connection with God in the way Noah does. But because of Noah, they can join in and they'll be part of this saving act that God does. Against the backdrop of all humanity that deserves God's judgment, but I will establish a covenant with you, a commitment with you, a promise with you. I will save you. I'll save your family. I will choose you, and they will be mine, and I will save them from this wrath that's going to come. This is God's third covenant in the Bible already, and we're only at chapter 6. The first covenant was when he told Adam and Eve, don't eat of the tree. If you obey, you will live. This is the covenant of works. Do what I tell you and live. And they denied, they, lie, they turned against God. They sinned. They failed in the covenant of works and were under condemnation. They died spiritually and their bodies started to follow suit. But God immediately in chapter 3, verse 15, promises that he will, he commits to, he covenants to send a savior, to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. The covenant of God's grace. The covenant of works, now the covenant of grace. And every new recommitment that God makes flows from his commitment to show grace. It's true that in those covenants there will be Requirements that are made, these are reminders of their inability to keep what God commands them, pulls them back to grace. And now we have the covenant with Noah in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. 
and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God completely obliterating the earth does not stop him from keeping his promised seed who would come. He's faithful to keep his promises. The first thing we learn from what he does here in saving Noah, giving Noah this instruction, covenanting with Noah, is a promise to all of us that the things God promises us in his word, he will never relinquish. There's no amount of bad stuff that can happen that will make him take back what he has promised in Christ. This first benefit of the passage is the assurance that believers have that yes, God is just in his judgment, but he's given us deliverance. He's given us his grace, and he's pointed the way. And this very story shows us the way. But I want you to see what this impact, the impact of God's grace has, especially on Noah, but it should be this way for all of us who have experienced God's grace. You'll see the recipient of God's grace is moved to obedience. Look there in the passage with me. In verse 8, God found, or Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. With God's grace upon Noah, he then lives a life that demonstrates his walking with God, as the passage describes. These are the generations of Noah, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Remember, Enoch walked with God. Noah has this intimate relationship. His character is shaped by his walking with God, by his reception of God's favor. His life looks different. His life takes a different course. God gives Noah grace, and we see the result in his life. A righteous man he's described as, blameless in his generation. Righteous, why? Because of his belief in God's promise, revelation, his promise of a seed, his revelation to him. Now, I'm not imposing that. The author of Hebrews, describing this whole account, says in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 7, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The righteousness he has is that which comes by faith. It's the same message that we see throughout the whole of the Bible, very explicitly described when we come to Abraham, and then Paul tells us what this is all about. They believe God's promises, and that belief made them counted as righteous before God. Noah walked with God in verse 9. What does this all, or how does this all work itself out? Well, in his actions. Skip down to verse 15. God gives this direction. Now, we've heard this story over the years. Now, I want you to try to imagine. It's not rained yet. I don't, there's not uh, floating vessels that they would have been familiar with that looked anything like this, even if they had a boat in a pond somewhere, if there was a pond nearby. Whatever the case, this picture is not something they'd ever seen. So imagine getting all this instruction. This is how you are to make the ark, essentially, in verse 15. The length should be 300 cubits, its breadth 50, its height 30. Make a roof. He's describing particulars about it. And finish it to a cubit above. Set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. Now, this wasn't a seagoing ship. It would have been very difficult to picture this. No examples of it existed, no doubt. A massive, massive barge, essentially. I mean a massive barge. 440 feet long approximately, 75 feet across, 45 feet high, massive inside, 96 in size, 96,000 square feet, 1.4 million cubic feet with a tonnage of 13,960. 
It would easily hold 35,000 different varieties of invertebrate species. Many more if they're immature when they come on. They're young animals. He's describing all of this to Noah. I don't know what your response would be. Then he says in verse 17, God does to Noah, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So Noah's getting a picture of what this is about, what he, why he's doing what he's going to do. But what else? Verse 19, And of every living thing of all flesh, you, Noah, Noah, are you still listening, Noah? You shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. Two of every sort. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds. And God continues to give all this instruction. Verse 21, also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Make this barge, this massive boat, this ark, get two of every animal situated on it, and also get supplies ready. I don't know what better display of faith there could be than what we read in 22 after receiving that instruction. Noah did this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And this took decades upon decades. Scholars argue 75 to 120 years to carry out this, the entirety of this plan. God did what Noah told him as a result of the grace that God had been working in his life. He obeyed because he had found favor with God. Consider this, the scope and the size of this project, what Noah was called to in verse 22. Noah did this. Go to chapter 7. We see more of the same. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Now he's giving them some, him instructions about the sacrifices that would go on and such. There's more, more intricate details now. Verse 4, for in seven days, in a week's time, the seven days is, is meaningful for sure, but in seven days I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And again, verse 5 of chapter 7, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. A recipient of his grace, Noah does what God asks, what God commands. And this is a general truth for those who've been saved by God's grace, that we should seek to obey. We don't obey to get his grace. We obey because he has worked his grace. We have a desire to follow God. That's a difficult following many times. And God, we learn in the New Testament, gives us his spirit to help us with that obedience. But recognize that obedience comes from the grace that God has shown to Noah, and that's why this unfolds the way it does. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives were with him when he went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Down in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 7, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. They entered as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. I want us to learn something else, thirdly, in this passage. We learn when we see this kind of event, this catastrophic hand of God upon the earth, we are moved, we must be moved to a greater reverence for God by this act of judgment. Believers should read this, and their first response should be, thank you, God, 
from saving me from that. Now, I want to say as a special note, when we read the passage, we might think of how awful this is for those people who lived on the earth at this time, no question. But recognize that we read in 1 Peter that Noah was a herald of righteousness. He was a preacher, and we learn in other places that he preached at this time. So it's very, very reasonable to assume that many people probably came to believe upon God based on the preaching that went on by Noah. It's not to say that every single person who died here was an unbeliever. There could have been many believers when the flood came. But believers are not promised earthly relief of suffering when they come to Christ. There was still more God was doing here. They could have been true believers and still died in the flood. Methuselah probably died in the flood. We don't know the specifics, but sometimes people use as some kind of a judgment. Look at how awful. Look at, God gave a hundred years of preaching the gospel. And I'm sure many people, I hope many people came to faith. That does not mean that they will be delivered. And believers, we have to understand this. God may bring judgment in a certain place. It doesn't mean the Christians will not undergo that physical judgment. We're saved for eternity. We shouldn't fear that. But be sure, if judgment comes upon us as a nation, let's say, Christians will not be relieved of this. We'll be under this, but we're safe in Christ. We recognize that. There's much that we can glean from what we see happening in this account. A redemptive judgment, because as we read it, our response should be, God, thank you for saving me for eternity through Christ, no matter what does happen on the outward. And I know some judgment is coming, and I want to tell everybody, tell everybody where they can find the ark of salvation. Verse 10, this picture is unlike anything that human, any human being could come up with to describe. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And that's a great description. It wasn't just from a rain. The flood waters came upon the earth. In verse 11, the 600th year of Noah's life, the, seven, the second month, down to the very details of the 17th day of the month. On that day, because there was something cataclysmic that happened on day one, Rain came after this and continued to fill, but there was something cataclysmic. You know, we use the word cataclysm too much probably, sort of like awesome, right? But cataclysm, if it could be used for anything, it could be used for this. I heard it used just recently with regard to a volcano that, that erupted near the Tonga Islands, and it was a significant eruption for sure. Um, newly released satellite images show the massive um, spewing of the ashes that went 100,000 feet up. That's how far the ashes... So on the satellite, you can see this huge glob in, this, in the ocean where Tonga is. And, it's, and I heard cataclysm, a cataclysmic eruption it was described as. And the ashes that dumped in the nearby islands were, were catastrophic and uh, they, damaging for sure. Many of the islands, including some populated ones, heavily damaged. And then not only the ashes, but the tsunami that came and wiped, wiped over those islands at that time coral reefs around because of the ashes falling in the ocean are, are doing years and years of damage in one shot. Truly catastrophic, to say the least. Ruinous, we might say. Even an island 40 miles northeast was covered with ash. 40 miles north. Detectors around the planet, as far away as Antarctica, recorded the low-frequency boom from the explosion as it traveled through the atmosphere. And they called it cataclysmic. Now, it's Massive for sure. But you didn't know about it till you saw something online about it. And you didn't feel a boom. The whole earth felt the flood. That was cataclysmic. 
Take whatever we say is cataclysmic and multiply it exponentially. And really what we have in this episode when the floodwaters come open, we have a reversal of creation as God separated the waters in creation. Now he brings them back down upon the earth to recreate reconstitute even, because we know that the floodwaters come up from underneath. It says in verse 11, on that day the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heavens were open. So that splitting that he did in creation, he lets loose from the top and from the bottom the earth busts open in all sorts of ways, in ways that would have had drastic geological impact across the globe, under the waters. And then as the waters are over the earth for all that time, who knows what amount of shifting and moving goes on, as God, in a sense, brings judgment and then recreates. Just as in the last day, he brings judgment, not by water, but by fire, it says in Second Peter, and then brings the new heavens and the new earth. A bit of a picture we have here happening before us. It says back in our text, verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The flood continued. For 40 days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. I know there's discussion often among scholars about the scope of the flood. Was it localized or was it the earth over? In this case, we have many uh, biblical writers referring to the flood as though it covered the earth. That's the perspective. Even our Lord will say it in those terms. The waters prevailed, increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters, verse 19, prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. Now, we don't know that the mountains were as high then as they are now, part of the cataclysmic event that happens, and as the waters recede, that's the mountain ranges we know. There's lots of questions we don't know the answer to. But the fact is, the text is clear that this is how it happened. Over the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, verse 19. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, swarming creatures that swarm on the earth. All that God created so wonderfully and beautifully, he now wipes this out to start it all over again. That's the kind of message he has for what the impact of sin is on the earth and the idea that Satan would somehow thwart the seed or his promise. This is the ultimate statement by God that I am God, you are not, and my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and I will do whatever I want to do because I am God. And the only right reaction for us is to say, yes, you are God, and we fall down before you. That's the right response. Not that's not, that's not fair. How could he? Totally fair. Completely fair. In fact, not fair because he saves some people. That should be our response as a Christian. Now, why does he save everybody? I don't understand why it's not fair. Why did he save you? That's really the only question that I'm concerned with personally. How is it that he saves me? This is part of the lesson we see once again on display in this passage. All the flesh, all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, so forth. Everything. It just gives such a, a cataclysmic description of what happens here. Just complete and utter destruction as we know it. Verse 23, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens. They're blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. And don't miss this subtlety of the passage, but it's meant for us to really grasp this covenantally, God's grace concerning. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. In this moment, Noah's a picture of Christ. Are you with him? you'll be saved. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. They stayed there churning and didn't start receding till that time. 
Still, there was many, many days after that before they could actually leave the ark. We have the power of God on display here, his awesome power. This is what prompts King David to say, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Later, King David writes in the Psalms, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. God alone is to be feared. God alone is to be feared. Finally, I want you to see from this first part of the flood narrative that spans several more chapters. This display that we see of God's holiness, his justice, his power, his grace, it leads all of us who have ears to hear and eyes to see what this is saying. It leads all of us to a place of total and willing dependence. We have to depend on him for salvation. God gives specific instruction. He reveals it in his word when he, to the detail, says, Noah, build an ark this high, this wide, this long, this many decks. That is a little blip of what he's given us in the Bible. He's not left you to go hack through life with no guidance. He's given you his word so you have direction, so you can go to and see, what is God's perspective? The world's saying this, and the world's a mess. What's the truth? And he tells you in his word. Just like, yes, the world will be destroyed, but I'm going to give you specifics and how to be saved. Here it is, the word. Dependent totally on him to give this to us because we can't conjure it. We can't come up with it. We can't invent it. Utter dependence. I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life is under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. Tells him exactly, exactly what he will do. If that's true, if you're going to do all that, God, I'm done. Yep, you are done. God must save you. Total dependence on him. Nothing Noah could have done. Nothing he could have done. And here's the thing that's so interesting about this passage. Well, there's many. But it says in verse 16 of chapter 7, something that didn't really catch my eye the same way when I was considering how completely dependent mankind is on anything from God. Okay, maybe Noah could come up with some kind of flotation device, even if you could imagine that. Look what it says in verse 16. Verse 15 and into 16. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all of flesh, went in as God had commanded him. The last six words. And the Lord shut him in. He could not even shut the door on the thing. He had to have God shut the door on the boat. I mean, that's utter dependence. He did all this stuff for 100 years to build this thing, and he could not properly shut the door. We might assume God has to shut it from the outside in some supernatural fashion and seal it up in some way that it will not leak as soon as the flood waters come upon the ark. Total dependence. You can't read this story and see anything about what Noah did is the reason why they got saved. It's all entirely because of what God told them to do and even God giving them at the end a final, a gracious closing of the door so they, they could be saved. Verse 23, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. God's judgment is ultimately, when we read it with these eyes to see, when we read it through the lens of what the New Testament, what the Lord Jesus and the apostles tells us, we see it's a redemptive judgment. 
And these acts of God's righteous judgment, they prompt the people of God to an assurance of God's promises, a dependence upon God's promises, an obedience that flows from this, a reverence for who our God is, and ultimately a dependence on him and him alone. Let's pray. Father, your word is perfect. The arguments that it contains does abundantly evidence itself to be the very word of God. Yet, notwithstanding, our full understanding and our ability to apply the truth of your word is totally and utterly dependent on the inward work of your Holy Spirit. So we ask, O Lord, that you, through this exposure to your word, that you would give us assurance of salvation and compel us from that place of grace to obey you. Lord, may our time spent in the Bible this, this morning, may it grow our reverence for you and deepen our dependence on Christ for salvation. For Christ is our ark of salvation. Pray this in his name. Amen. Let's together turn in our hymnal.